It's the show for real people doing real work in social media. It's the Social Pros Podcast from Jay Bear of Convince and Convert, featuring Jeff Roars and special contributor Zena Wiest. Presented by Interactive Marketing Hub, Exact Target, and sponsored by Jan Rain, the leaders in social sign-in and interaction. Cision, giving marketers and PR pros tools to expand their exposure. And Xbeon, social engagement software for world-class companies. Ready to accelerate your social media? Let's get to work. Welcome back, everybody, to Social Pros, the podcast for real people doing real work in social media. I am, as always, Jay Bear from Convince and Convert, joined by Jeff Roars from Exact Target and the lovely and talented Zena Wiest from Xbeon. Folks, how are you today? Doing well, Mr. Bear. Doing well. Yes. Jeff, you are having uh, some sort of backyard deck put onto your home. Is that is that correct? I I am indeed, uh, nicknamed Decasaurus Rex. And and it, it seems as though I have had an entire house built in the amount of time it's taken you to get this deck created. What what exactly are you installing in the back there? Is there like a lava feature? What's going on? No, the uh, the wrinkle is uh, there are curved edges, and uh, apparently we are. We are testing the tensile strength of the decking material, the composite decking material. So we well, that sounds that sounds like a Vine video waiting to happen right there. I, I don't know. There'd be a lot of cursing for those six seconds of video. <laughs> uh, but yeah, pretty much you're you're bending composite material, and uh, you uh, you only know if it can bend that far until it breaks. So. All right, well, the contractor's telling me. we're going to need some before and after photos uh, on the show notes page oh, for next I'm, week. I'm going to be doing an Everlapse on it. I've been taking pictures nice. of the same spot nice. every day. So I'll do an Everlapse. I love Everlapse. Big fan. Big fan and of also, that. And also an invitation to come over and, and enjoy the deck oh, once absolutely. it's finished. Standing, uh, standing invitation. So, uh, you know, anybody who's coming in for uh, content marketing world, drop me a, drop me a line uh, on the Twitter and uh, I'll have you over for some beverages, perhaps one evening. I'm just bringing my sleeping bag. I'm going to go that route. Hey, you can do that. Get a little camping action. Uh, somebody who will not... Somebody... That's right. Somebody who will not be camping in your backyard at Content Marketing World is our guest on the show today, the principal analyst for the Altimeter Group, Mr. Brian Solis. Brian, how are you, my friend? Well, I am great. Feeling a little left out that I'm going to miss camping out in the backyard, but uh, I guess I'll have to live vicariously for you guys. We will surround you with champagne because I know that that is your true passion, more so than sleeping bags. You are, uh, you are uh, like me, you are an avid indoorsman, and I appreciate that. Lovely. Thank you. And I will take that champagne anytime, anywhere. I know that you will. We're going to make that happen. That, that might have to be your post-show uh, reward is some sort of uh, champagne <laughs> sent directly uh, to your mouth. Brian, tell us a little bit about um, about what you've got going on in Altimeter Group. I know that that you and Charlene Lee put together uh, an ebook recently, a Kindle only book called "The Seven Success Factors of Social Business." Uh, loved that book as well as the format. Talk a little bit about uh, kind of what you were trying to accomplish there and and why you packaged it up that way. Yeah, well. First of all, for those who don't know, Altimeter Group is a research-based advisory firm. It was started by Charlene Lee, uh, who was previously at Forrester Research. So she brought to the company this traditional um, approach to market research. Uh, and one of the artifacts in market research is to publish reports. 
In Forrester's case, the reports were often published for a, a, no, a notable fee. And you have enterprise customers, and they could afford these things. Uh, but when Charlene started Ultimata Group, uh, Jeremiah Ayeng had joined her also from Forrester Research. And they had this idea uh, to build a model based on open research. So we conduct market research, we write reports, we give it away for free. So put the model uh, on its head as a way to then allow us get access to information and then get inside organizations to advise them on what they need to do. So long story short, we had published a report earlier this year uh, that looked at the six stages of social business transformation. And it was, it was a, let's just say an eye-opener. We had found out that most businesses, no matter how much they're celebrated for being amazing, uh, do not align social media strategies with business objectives. And that is a problem. And that also is a problem not just because it should, but because when you start to try to get more budget and resources, when you try to sort of help your customer at every stage of the customer journey or the life cycle, you just find a lot of gaps and a lot of holes. Uh, so it, by its very nature, we tried to make it positive. So, you know, well, here's the path you can take to, to grow and evolve and be a more effective social business. We had so much amazing data uh, and, and insights out of that, that process that we wanted to follow up with something a little bit more positive. Uh, and what we had found was those companies at the far right of the evolution chain, uh, they had seven success factors that helped them sort of make the successful transformation of social businesses. And so we, uh, we wrote an ebook uh, that shared every single one of them. And the reason we did an ebook rather than a report was merely just testing, testing the waters to see if other artifacts, other formats could be uh, promising for a firm like ours. And indeed, the ebook factor or the form factor turned out to be pretty, uh, pretty successful. We were surprised. Um, we, we didn't put a lot of marketing behind it just simply because we're a research firm and we could probably be better at marketing, but it did pretty well. It still, uh, still continues to make waves. So instead of giving away the research, you are uh, giving it away for for a pittance, the two ninety nine or or three ninety nine or whatever it was. It's an interesting uh, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. <laughs> when, I saw, <laughs> when I saw their pricing model, I uh, I said, wow, two ninety nine is going to be either really good because it's inexpensive, or just people are going to say, man, this is cheap. How good could this be? Well, yeah, it's interesting, right? That that psychology. We're in such a strange time now, with with content consumption and the psychology of pricing, where so much content of of you know unbelievable value, like the things that you guys produce for free, is in fact free. And then you have the twenty five dollar book or the thirty dollar book in some cases, uh, and then you have the two dollar and ninety nine cent ebook. It's and if you lined those things up and said, okay, uh, I'm not going to tell you how much these cost. You tell me how much you think you'd pay. Uh, in many cases, people would put the same value tag on, on all of those, despite a, a huge variance in actual price point. Don't you find that to be a little bit of a sticky wicket right now? Yeah, well, the psychology of it is, is, is certainly one of the reasons why we're experimenting. Uh, you know, so, for example, uh, I just published a book called What's the Future of Business? And I think that has a $30 cover, uh, a, a cover price on it. Uh, you have this ebook at $2.99, and then you have the, the free research. And the question is, do you value the information in one over the other simply because of the price you paid to get it? Uh, and, and often, studies show yes, uh, which is one of the reasons why I love that Radiohead experiment when they released uh, their album uh, in Rainbows. 
where they let people sort of just pay what they thought it was worth. And certainly you had a lot of folks just download it for a dollar, but I think Radiohead reported that people overpaid for it just because it was a, a show of appreciation for their work. Um, we haven't gotten to that part yet where we publish something and say, pay, pay what you think it's worth. But look, the, the important part about this is that we could just be a stodgy traditional research firm, and, but instead we're, we're continuing to experiment and everybody benefits in the process. I think since the three of us here on the show are from the Midwest, we'll do that, but more of a barter system. We'll just say, give us whatever you want for our work so we can get wheat. Um, you know, Jeff could get a lamb, maybe. Uh, Zena can maybe get a wheel of cheese from a, a local uh, cheese producer, something like that. It's very, uh, very bucolic, uh, old, old America. Well, if you're, if you're talking champagne, then, you know, maybe <laughs> there, you too. there you go. Absolutely. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in uh, the seven success factors ebook was your note, uh, sort of a chart in there that shows that uh, most companies and on average are, are staffing at sort of a two to one ratio, external social versus internal social. Um, and there's so many more bodies involved with communicating externally than there are with with developing culture and uh, and sharing. We talked to Matt Ridings on the show last week about some social business issues as well. Do you think that's appropriate or are companies under utilizing or, or under um, staffing their internal social social business functions? You know, so that, that's a, an interesting question. It's also one that's difficult to answer in, in, a, in a general sense, and that is because um, when you look at how businesses are sort of designing social strategies and they're not against business objectives for the most part, it's the, the staff that you have is essentially to support the social media function without a designated outcome, right? So we're still looking at likes and comments, shares, instead of sort of linking the dotted lines and direct lines into, you know, what, what is it that we're trying to actually do with this stuff, right? So, for example, you saw... I think today that Twitter partnered with Datalogix to track uh, sales. So do tweets lead to sales? Uh, we had uh, Monolith's Bonin uh, report out that they were one of the early te testers and they were able to link tweets to sales. So the reason I share this with you is because then you start to see, well, what we have and maybe what we need might be in fact two very different things. You're actually going to see when you, when you make that connection, your, your internal and your external resources to support this are going to be far greater than it is because then social becomes a way of business, right? It's just like right now, it's who, who here knows how to operate email? Okay, well, you're inside. Let's go. Who here knows how to operate a URL uh, browser? Uh, okay, you external, go. But it's, it's mostly driven by expertise uh, rather than, say, strategic needs. One of the things that uh, I thought is really interesting in your evolution of social business uh, research that, that you uh, put out oh, a few months ago, I guess it was now, um, you've got sort of the six-step, uh, six-stage process. So uh, planning, presence, engagement, formalized, strategic, and converged, sort of the highway of, of social business transformation in your work as a consultant and an analyst, do you find one of those steps to be sort of the biggest leap, the, the toughest obstacle for, for companies to clear? You know, they all have their own, their own challenges and also their own opportunities. The, the, the hardest one is the last one, um, the holistic, uh, in the sense that you're, 
you're starting to actually look beyond social, uh, which is interesting now that you're looking at a <laughs> social business. And the reason why that is uh, is kind of what we were talking about earlier. At some point, social just becomes a way of business, right? So, for example, how you look at collaborating with employees, how you look at sharing knowledge within the enterprise, how you look at aligning departments within the organization, uh, how you look at talking to customers at every stage of the journey. You start to realize that the promise of social isn't in the technology, it's in the fact that you open your doors and sort of reintroduce that idea of old school business, right? Doing, pe doing business with people and hopefully doing business with people you like and want to build a relationship with. So that becomes much more powerful than any of the things that the technology sort of provides. Technology just becomes an enabler to this bigger mission and purpose. So, so the end stage in that transformation is, is often the most difficult because now you take those same principles and you apply it to web, to digital, to in-store, to the real world. And that is when you really see businesses become, uh, just like, for example, the ones that we all celebrate. You're just doing good business. So Zappos, for example, is one that every business or every social media expert loves to talk about. But if you talk to Tony Shea, the company CEO, he will tell you, and there's increments in the company's evolution. For example, every three years, they would review sort of where they are and where they need to be, revenue, what it takes to get to the next hurdle. And he had this sort of driving philosophy, this driving principle, and it was he had studied businesses that focus on the bottom line versus businesses that had sort of a higher purpose or a more aspirational model. And he found that those with a higher purpose always outperform those that focus on the bottom line. And that sort of became his mission, his driver. And that's sort of the same principle of a, of a social business. When you can link sort of aspirations to business goals and to customer relationships, you now have a mission and a purpose that allows you to transform in a much more meaningful way where social, social media, technologies start to become sort of the facilitation, the bridge between people. And that is the hardest part because you're essentially shifting the philosophy of your business. And that that doesn't come easy, especially when today's leadership doesn't necessarily think that way. Hey, Brian, this is uh, Jeff. Um, wanted to switch gears a little bit because uh, on your on your blog you had touched upon recently um, this this idea of narcissism in uh, in social media, and um, there there's some interesting things developing around that, around um, kind of the hybrid side with content marketing, as you know, brands are trying to kind of push their um, their perspectives into traditional, um, uh, say, journalistic channels in new ways through content marketing. And this idea of narcissism both on the individual level and on the corporate level, on the brand level, is very intriguing to me. Um, how, how is that beginning to factor into the way that you uh, are advising companies on how they both use social media or avoid, say, the third rail uh, syndrome where um, a little bit too much conversation about self can actually alienate people. Well, it's, it's a hard one to answer because I'm a, I'm a hopeless optimist, right? So when I use words like narcissism, you, you'll usually see it uh, with another word. So in this case, I use accidental narcissism. Yep. Uh, I'm not, yep. What I'm trying to say is that I don't believe that anyone is using these technologies to become a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> right, maybe an egotist, but it's just a, it's a natural symptom of what happens, right? The more that you put yourself in the center of the social stream, the more that the stream becomes you, 
And then the more that your your connections sort of become those satellites that orbit your social, uh, I call it the ecosystem. Uh, so the idea then is that if your connected customer is becoming more self-aware and as a result they're sort of creating this persona and investing in this persona, which is shaping this persona, and they are at the center of all of these things, then what are the what are the attributes and the characteristics of this person, what their mindset, the psychology, the sociology of this, that then has to change your company's messaging, your strategy, uh, your content, uh, the words that you use, and you find that it's actually pretty significant in how much you have to change and transform, right? Because the thing about social is that anybody can say anything, but it becomes faster, noisier, much more difficult to reach people. This is why Facebook continues to change its algorithm. So if that's the case, how do you get somebody to see something, to share something, and do something? And when you can reverse engineer these things, you realize that this idea of accidental narcissism only improves the way that you talk and communicate. It really gets you to think much more strategically. One of my, um, one of my best experiments throughout, you know, going back the way well before social media has always been to see or design an outcome. If I want somebody to do this, how do you reverse engineer that? And I did uh, some really interesting experiments with, with brands and nonprofits over the years where the outcome wasn't just a share or a reaction, the outcome was a donation, for example, and how do you weave all of those things together in a narcissistic society? And I gotta tell you, it was, it, what you think and what ends up working are often counterintuitive, but it forces you to rethink the approach. And I guess that's what the whole, that's what all of this is about, is that we keep looking at this new opportunity and we keep bringing traditional mindsets and philosophies to this, right? So. Look at how most, most businesses are using social media today, uh, whether it's on the advertising side or the marketing side or the service side. It's all pretty much built upon traditional models that we all know because that's the way the business is structured. That's what we've learned. That's our experience over the years. It's those who really start to experiment differently uh, where they're given the license to pilot things that are new. When you start to see the most interesting things happen, in the, and, that's, and that's how we learn. Any um, any companies wrestling with that notion of um, uh, that notion of narcissism from their perspective? So uh, a lot of uh, and this is one of the core changes, obviously, with social business is that you're changing it from the me of your brand to the, to the me of your consumers. Uh, with with the rapid change and fragmentation of channels and everything else that, that's happening, um, are are brands still butting their heads up against that concept? Is it, is it still fundamentally difficult for them to get out of that me-centric relative to their needs and shift it over? Or do you feel that that's becoming easier just because of the, the, the widespread adoption and usage of social? Well, you know, for the most part, socials, I, let's just say it's misunderstood uh, or, or underappreciated, sort of the effect that it has in society. This is why I believe that to better understand this, you have to bring a social science approach, right? So anthropology, sociology, ethnography. Uh, this helps you better understand the people, right? And you realize that there is no one audience. And this is a big deal because a lot of businesses still apply that audience mentality to things, right? Get the biggest number um, with the, the least amount of spend, uh, do more with less. Uh, and 
social is sort of the antithesis of that, that approach. So at the end of the day, you still have the same person sort of giving the edict or the direction for the company, uh, and you have folks in social trying to do new and interesting things, but the culture of the organization is sort of what prevents this innovation uh, or acceleration in innovation because the thinking just isn't there, right? You're bumping it up against, you know, skepticism, you're bumping up against silos, you're bumping up against processes and politics that just makes it very difficult to try new things. So yeah, for the most part, this becomes difficult. And you don't help yourself when you try to push social through the ranks uh, when the decision makers in an organization say just they can really care less about social. I mean, they, they talk to shareholders and they talk to stakeholders and they see their kids using this stuff and you know, they just live in a different world. However, Executives are, will say that if you can help me better understand how any of this helps us achieve business priorities or goals or opens new opportunities that help us do things that sort of align with where we're trying to go, then I'm going to listen to you, right? Because then it's not a technology story. Then it's a, then it's a customer story. It's a, it's a human story, right? But let me give you an idea. Things are changing so quickly. You can actually see this, this idea of accidental narcissism happening just within the workforce or among employees today, right? So instead of trying to understand it, right, to better understand this deviant behavior, what ends up happening is that <laughs> managers today push back on it, saying, well, you know, in my time I had to do this, and now we have this, this age of, of employees coming up who had it easy, who got a trophy for everything, and they, they, they make it a real negative conversation rather than trying to build bridges to figure out ways to groom the next generation of the workforce. Brian, talking about the C-suite and, and social, what traction are you seeing? What inroads are you seeing with your clients on what, you know, what is getting traction when it comes to operationalizing social within the organization, making it something where it's less about the expertise of running Facebook and more about what's best for business objectives? Well, a lot of this is, is some, almost one of those um, aha moments where the social strategist has to become self-aware that what they're doing and maybe what they could be doing are, in fact, two different things. And that, that's the hardest part because you go to these conferences, you read anything related to social media, and they, you know, it's the same stories, it's the same case studies, same you know, celebrations. And you know, I, look, as an analyst, I happen to know that those companies that we're celebrating aren't doing the right things. Uh, and so, but here they are sort of touting how amazing they are. So it sort of starts with drinking the Kool-Aid and maybe realizing that the Kool-Aid, maybe there's other flavors. <laughs> it's not even good. Uh, maybe there's something else. And those individuals are the ones that start asking the most interesting questions. And it's in those questions where they sort of find ways to build the case. I think I, a lot of this comes down to uh, most likely being a great lawyer, you know, what's the evidence? What's the case you're trying to make? What's the outcome that you're trying to fight for? So you start to move away from this idea of being a social media expert or champion, and you start to move into this idea of, I don't know, like a politician mixed with a lawyer, where you're trying to bring about bigger change because it has greater impact on employees, customers, what, what, what have you. Um, and in the Seven Factors uh, ebook, we actually found that those individuals recognized that there was greater strength uh, in, in numbers, and so they would create sort of this de facto steering committee 
where they would try to list out all of the challenges facing the business. So if it's anything from better understanding who our customer is, uh, improving how we work together, uh, understanding customer experience and where it breaks down, usually things that are already in motion within the organization, but the people who are heading up those, those little circles come together and form a steering committee that then makes the case to get an executive sponsor. And so then social media becomes part of a bigger movement to change businesses to be more digital savvy, uh, to be more open, to be more nimble, to be more innovative. So you actually put social into the bigger mix of what, what, what an organization needs to um, possess to effectively compete for what I call this era of digital Darwinism when society and technology are evolving faster than most businesses' ability to adapt. So I guess the answer is to move social forward, it's almost like you have to stop talking about social and start talking about outcomes and then use social as an enabler. And when you start to use social as an enabler, you realize that that's just one part of the overall customer journey and life cycle. And there's other touch points. There's other, there's other channels. There's other ways that they sort of bounce off of each other to help them navigate uh, successfully through that infinity loop. So that's, that's the way I look at things. It's totally different. People get their mind blown when they hear that and they think that I'm either really smart about the approach or that I'm completely out of my mind because that's too difficult to fathom because you're already on this path. But either way, this is the benefit of being an analyst. When you study this, you start to see what works and what doesn't work. You get access to things that other people don't have, the things that they're not talking about in conferences, the things that people are, uh, you know, when you get great organizations like Gas Pedal, for example, where you have brands coming together in a closed room where everything is sort of stays in that room and the questions that start to get asked and the, the experiences that are shared and the, and the problems that are shared, you know, this is very real. And these are very real answers to this, but you have to stop looking at Facebook, right? Twitter, those are just tools. And, and, and I'd even argue if you look at Facebook and you sort of pat yourself on the back that you have 33 million likes, I bet you most of those likes are useless. They're probably not even the people you want to reach at all. They just stop by one day and hit like. And those numbers, you know, when you play the numbers game, you miss the bigger business opportunity. Yeah, we. I have so many questions. You've just brought up so many great elements, and I wish we had a little bit more time. But I have, I have one more question. I'm shifting gears, but I just wanted to get your take on your book and the format, the design of it. I, I absolutely love it. You know I've talked with you about it. I think it's beautiful, but I also think it's a great way to learn, and I think it really taps into, um, I think it's going to be a great book for universities to utilize when um, you know teaching, teaching kids about social Darwinism. And anyway, I would just love your take on why the design element and why you kind of shifted gears with it. Well, I'm going to, you know, one of, my, one of my goals on this call is to con convince Jay to, to pay attention to this in the form of a blog post. But here's the real story. Um, I, if I had more time in the world, I would reinvent education. Uh, I just think that the way that we're trying to teach and the way that people are actually learning are just very different. And when I was writing What's the Future of Business, I realized that I could just do what I've done. I think it's my fifth book. Just sit down, crank things out, write. I love writing. Um, but 
coming back to earlier in the podcast when we were talking about changing how you write, changing how you talk, changing how you present information, uh, I spent about a year really studying UX, um, user experience design, and also sort of the behaviors and the patterns of the, today's connected customer, not just millennials, but people who live a digital lifestyle, right? So why do you why do you find yourself sharing BuzzFeed articles now more than Wall Street Journal articles? And there's just interesting ways that your brain is connecting to things, things that stand out in your social stream, uh, visual versus text. And I had to sort of change how I talk. I had to change how I form sentences. I had to change how I present information, shorter bursts of text. I had to visualize what would have normally been a paragraph and find a way to turn that into an infographic that speaks to you better than a series of sentences. So the book is, a, is, is an analog app. It, it, does, it has a, a, a slider. Um, it has a nav bar. Uh, the way that it's totally presented in terms of visual and text is intentional. It's a square format instead of your traditional business book. The paper is thicker. Uh, kind of coming back to that conversation earlier where um, you know, it does $2.99 versus a free book versus a $30 book have a, a, a change in your, your perception. Um, that part is to be seen, but the paper, I do know for a fact, is weightier. It's heavier than most business book paper because you're going to feel better, stronger, more confident as you're turning the page. And the nice thing about it is that as you turn, you don't even have to read it left to right. You can read it from wherever, hence the nav bar. But the, um, the part that I really want to share is that it was motivated by if you had to build a better textbook and it had to be paper, how would you make it digital? And that was what this is about. And so one day I'm going to share that aspect of it to sort of see if I could redesign a textbook. Yeah, that idea of of book as app and app as book uh, and the fact that, you know, as as authors, Jeff's new book is coming out and I've got some and you've got some and Zena's got some ideas brewing. The the end-to-end narrative approach where let's let's knock out 60,000 or more words that people are going to consume them in a linear fashion the only time we actually consume content like that is in book form. That's the only time we do that anymore. Everything else is nonlinear and highly visual. Uh, so I think you're definitely onto something that, that the future is, is, uh, is going to be a, a new way of content creation and content consumption. And I think it's amazing that you were able to get a traditional publisher to work with you in that journey, because that's such a departure. Um, WTF is such a departure from the traditional look and feel that uh, I would have thought you would have to have uh, gone it alone. So uh, good job by Wiley for uh, taking the plunge with you. Yeah, you know, they were they were really supportive. Um, and this is the one part that I didn't share, but they were so supportive that they actually turned over uh, creative control to um, myself uh, and a, a bunch of my friends. So that, that even, for them to do that was a really big deal, a yeah. big show of, of trust and faith. Uh, but look, it's, it's, it's not done. It's part one of two. So part two comes out and it's, it continues on this UX journey. And, and what is the uh, ETA on part two now? Uh, TBD, because uh, I, uh, I was late in delivering part one. And I <laughs> Well, you got to do everything differently. It's a lot harder to write that kind of book, I imagine. Yeah, it took uh, it took longer to design it than it did to write it. That makes sense. 
All right. We will look for it. We're, we, we will make sure to have you back on the show uh, when when part two is approaching. Great stuff, Brian. We'll be back with more uh, with Brian Solis at the end of the show in the For Your Information section. First, let me remind you that this year podcast, Social Pros, is brought to you by the good people at Exact Target, a world leader in interactive marketing software. They are a salesforce.com company. They have a new, it's good, interesting to what Brian was talking about earlier with connecting social uh, to actual business outcomes. Exact Target has a free downloadable ebook now on that subject called The Mathematics of Social Marketing that I suggest you grab. I have it myself. It's quite good. You can get it for free right now. It's The Mathematics of Social Marketing. Grab it at ar.gy slash math. That's ar.gy slash math. That is all lowercase. Speaking of Exact Target, Mr. Jeff Roars, do you have a social media stat of the week? There, I do indeed. Um, this is a, a little bit of a different one for us. Um, I was uh, perusing my LinkedIn feed today, and um, someone had posted this uh, infographic from ecornell.com uh, forward slash strategy, which is the digital learning arm of Cornell University. So very timely that we're talking about different ways uh, to be learning and kind of reinventing higher education. Um, as with most infographics, it's got some self-serving data in here, but I think I thought it would be interesting to social pros. The first part of this infographic asks um, business leaders what they want their, uh, what basically their marketing teams need in order to increase productivity and profitability. And the number one answer with a bullet, uh, with 92% of the business leaders responding, um, they said that their marketing teams need a stronger understanding of the target market. Close behind was um, they believe that you know, more marketing training would increase revenue and that uh, the marketing teams need to constantly develop their knowledge of marketing. So the whole of the infographic is really about the idea of continuous professional development, which of course eCornell uh, has online courses for. But one of the stats that also caught my eye in this is that um, companies that spend at least $1,500 per employee on professional development show 24% higher gross profit margins than their competitors and 218% higher revenue per employee. So the notion of investing in your people uh, in order to realize uh, higher um, profits, higher revenue opportunities is very real. And for the folks uh, who are listening, this may be an infographic to have in your back pocket as you are looking to get approvals to go to conferences or get additional professional development um, coursework uh, under your belt. Um, because as we all know, this, this world of social and, and just marketing in general continues to change at such a rapid pace that if you aren't continuously learning, then you are continuously falling behind. So. Um, Again, this is an infographic from eCornell. We'll post it on the blog. But I thought folks might want to look at it because it's providing you both with the perspective of what uh, the business leaders in the organization want from the marketing teams, as well as uh, the revenue and productivity realized uh, when training uh, is delivered to the marketing organization. Well, I really like the part about the ongoing nature of training. It's so, so critical, especially in social media, social business, and, and employee empowerment in same. This idea that you can go through social media training the same way you can go through um, you know, diversity training or something along those lines is crazy. Uh, you know, everything is is changing quickly and continues to evolve. 
in the social sphere. And, and so this idea that you could train your team once and have them kind of got it figured out in, in social is, uh, is just not true. And it's difficult, admittedly difficult. We do a lot of that kind of work as well. And it's, it's hard to convince organizations that they need to invest not just in one round of training, but in ongoing training that just because you've trained everybody doesn't mean they have it handled. I'm sure Brian sees the same thing uh, with, with your clients at Altimeter, yes? Absolutely. You know, because there's one other interesting angle here, Jay, and that is that people are just, you know, inundated um, today. And so the, the nature of ongoing training is to make sure that you are, you are trying to catch people at different points, you know, throughout the marketing calendar because at different points they're going to, you know, be overwhelmed with, you know, Project X or this particular event or yeah. something else. Um, and so the idea of doing it once you may hit 50% of the people in the room, but the other 50%, you know, it just went over their heads. So, um, you know, kind of the constant drip uh, of information and knowledge, and then also getting out of your own ecosystem, right? It's great to have internal training, but you've got to be exposed to folks who don't have the group think uh, of your organization um, so that it, you know, challenges your assumptions, gets you, gets you to think a little bit sideways about your business, and that's where a lot of great creativity can come from. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wanted to jump in and Go say, ahead, you know, the whole sorry, Jay, but that one and done thing, it it what what the stats are saying that Jeff is talking about here is, you know, they're saying we need a we need more training. The executive team is saying that. Yet I feel like internally you've always got that, hey, you did that last year. You don't need to do that again this year. So, you know, what they're saying and actually what the budgets are allowing aren't the same. You know, so this is a good one to have in your hip pocket. Well, it's hard because there's not too many other topics where you can make a credible case that you need ongoing training, that you need to do it over and over and over. Uh, there may be some, but but there's not a lot. Uh, so it's not only do you have to argue for training, but you have to argue for training continuously. And that's a pretty, a pretty high clear, uh, you know, it's a high hill to climb for a lot of people. Definitely. All right, Zena, are you getting your holy social ready? I'm getting it ready. All right. I am giving you your cue. First, I want to tell you about our friends at XBeyond who have the good sense uh, to have employed our friend Zena Wiest. XBeyond has a really interesting new report called FAVE, the 50 Social Retail Report, the FAVE 50, I should say, the FAVE 50 Social Retail Report. And what it does is it analyzes the Facebook presence of 50 top U.S. retail brands uh, and unearths sort of key social trends in the industry. industry. So FAVE is, is, uh, stands for Fan Actions, Volume, and engagement, the kind of key metrics used in the report to, you know, kind of cross-reference and juxtapose these retailers against one another. If you're interested in how major retailers are doing well on Facebook or not so well, frankly, you need to check this out. It's really interesting. They analyze more than 16,000 Facebook posts across 50 companies. Lots of lessons there for us all. Grab it right now for free at ar.gy slash fave50. That's ar.gy slash fave50. That's all lowercase and 50 is a number. So it's F-A-V-E-5-0, ar.gy slash F-A-V-E-5-0. That's XBeyond's new fave50 social retail report. All right, Zena, let's hear this week's Holy Social. Okay, so we're going to talk about apps. We haven't talked about apps in a while, so I, I have one here that I think merits Holy Social mention. It is called Gavidi. I just like saying the name, Gavidi. It's G-V-I-D-I, and it means guide in Esperanto. 
which is a, oh, I thought that was Sean Combs' new new name, but that's actually an app. <laughs> Gavitti. Gavitti. I mean, I, I, Gavitti. So that's not what it is? Okay. That was Jeff, <laughs> hey, Jeff, I, I'd like for you to say it in Scottish if you could. Gavitti. Gavitti. <laughs> Gavitti. I love it. I know. I tell you, we could talk the whole time about just how to pronounce it. But anyway, it's available on iPhone and Android, and it's a personal guide to restaurants and cafes. And it launched in Russia last year, and it's been taking Europe by storm. So did a little research on it, and it's think of it as Foursquare combined with OpenTable, just with more social data hooks. Um, it gets smarter on recommendations as you feed it. You can connect your Twitter, your Facebook, and your Foursquare accounts to it. And the more social profiles you tie to it, the more accurate the personal recommendations of the engine are going to be for you. So basically, again, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. The features that caught my attention because of their utility, there's four of them, and I'll run through them really quickly so we can open this up for discussion. But the first one is the advanced algorithms. It's called advanced algorithms for your appetite. And this is the feature that they really hang their hat on. It's a sophisticated algorithm that assesses restaurants with your individual tastes and preferences, again, utilizing those social hooks, Facebook, Twitter, and um, Foursquare. Then they also have a food venue search by multiple criteria. So you, you put in, hey, I want Wi-Fi, I want a non-smoking area, and I'm looking for these hours, and oh, by the way, is I need something family-friendly, and it'll just provide you those kind of results. And then you've also got all the social tools for communication with your friends, of course. So information on cafes, bars, and restaurants your friends have visited, what they like and dislike, and opportunities for you to share opinions, both on the app and on your social networks. And the fourth one, which is actually my favorite and sounds like a no-brainer, is a map of the food venues nearby, but also guided directions from where you are to where the actual venue is. And Jay, I don't know if you remember this, but you found a place for us to eat on Foursquare when we were at, in New York for, yeah. I think it was for New Media Expo. Yeah, that great Thai restaurant, remember? Absolutely, that place and, was great. We couldn't find, it was awesome, but we could. it was only two blocks away where none of us were New Yorkers that were in the group, but we couldn't find it. We were on Foursquare, but we couldn't find it. So I think you had to go to Google, and I, used, I pulled up a navigation um, app and like we sort of muddled our way to find it. That may but be more that, of a that may be more of a Jay Bear has terrible directions issue than <laughs> a problem with Foursquare. But but I'll take the point. Yeah, I mean it was it would be great to have it in the app and just have it right there. I got you know just okay. This is the one I want. You you showed me the one I want. I know it's up with my preferences. Now tell me how to get there. Kind of just finishing it up. And I and why I chose this for whole social, holy social was I really feel like this app combines relevant data from your social profiles and provides the best recommendation in the moment. And that's what I love about it is it's taking the data that you, you know, your aggregated data and then it's helping you find what's best for you right then and there. Yeah, if there's enough data to, to make a difference, right? Enough, enough raw materials to really uh, execute on the premise of, hey, we're gonna mine your social chatter and the social chatter and check-ins of your friends to say, look, uh, these are the restaurants we really recommend. Obviously, it makes more sense and has more value in a dense urban area where you have more restaurant choices. Uh, I mean, I've eaten at almost every restaurant in this county, so I, I could probably be this app, uh, at least for Southern Indiana. 
But if they if they can actually cobble together enough data to make it work the way it's supposed to, I think it's genius. And and of course, other apps for similar circumstances, uh, whether it's uh, shopping or bars or uh, you know any number of other things you might be interested in. Yeah, I agree. And I think for travelers, this is key. Like when you know when you're in New York, when you're in in San Francisco, so people like you. This is what they like in San Francisco. This is what they like in New York. So agree, maybe not in your back, you know, in your home court, but when you're traveling, I, I can see this being really appropriate. And the ratings for it, they say this spot on as far as, you know, they really are taking the preferences that I've chosen in the past and then I'm, I'm getting to a new restaurant that I really like. I don't know, Jeff, what do you think? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I... I guess I'm being contrarian here, but I'm kind of I'm kind of apt out on stuff like this. I think I've got enough things, <laughs> and maybe it's because I hit my memory cap on my iPhone this week and I had to start deleting apps and uh, podcasts that I wanted to listen to and uh, vines and things that I had taken. Um, I'm beginning to realize that there is there is a uh, a cap to the utility, Jay, uh, of uh, the different applications in my life. Um, but I will play my, my own devil's advocate here. Uh, as I was shutting down my phone, I decided to see how many apps I actually had open. And I think I had almost every single app on my phone open. So it's not as if I'm not using them. Yeah, that'll kill your battery. I can tell you that. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's an ever-fragmenting world. I look at an app like this and... You know, uh, I, I saw the you know the positive reviews and everything else, and I think that's great. And as a as a traveler, I'm always looking for things that will recommend uh, recommend things uh, recommend uh, restaurants and things of that nature a little bit better. But I almost feel like at that point, it's not an app I need. It's I, I query my Facebook friends, or you know, I've already got Yelp, I've already got this, and I think that's the challenge that app developers like this. Uh, are going to only face more and more. And so uh, it has to have that killer idea to catch on to get uh, the critical mass. But again, I'm, I'm feeling crotchety today, Zena. I'm, I'm a little devil's advocate. So, you know, put a big asterisk for my We need to, we I need to, like we need to combine it. it. <laughs> Give it to you. We need to, <laughs> we need to combine these apps, right? Can't we have like a candy crush or something like that, that actually uses uh, the food that is uh, served by this restaurant nearby? That, that's what we need. Great idea. Let's, let's build that app. And, and we need to combine we'll discovery with up. games. <laughs> That's the, that's the idea. Let me remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that this podcast is also brought to you by Cision, the leading provider of software services and tools to the public relations industry. Cision has a new free content marketing kit that will help you get the most out of your online storytelling. Good stuff. Grab that for free as well at ar.gy slash content kit. That's ar.gy slash content kit. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. Brian Solis had to uh, run to another uh, meeting, so we will not get to find out who he would have a Skype call with uh, if he had the chance to do that. I'm going to assume that it was Zena. Meanwhile, uh, Mr. Uh, Roars, who's on the big uh, Social Pros podcast next week? Oh, you had to ask me that. I'm, I, Jay, 
You know better than that. <laughs> I will tell you. I will tell you who it is. It is uh, Dan Moyle from AmeriFirst Financial. Uh, will be joining us tomorrow. They're doing some amazing things in the mortgage space, actually, with social media. That's going to be a fascinating conversation. We haven't covered that ground much here on the show. Dan Moyle from AmeriFirst Financial on Social Pros next week. Before we close yeah. this week, uh, thanks as always to our friends at Jan Rain. Uh, they are a terrific sponsor of the show for a long, long time. They provide social sharing, social login, and social profile data collection services to a lot of big brands. They're doing a lot of interesting stuff over there uh, in terms of collecting and, and uh, harnessing social media data. We all, of course, want to collect data on our websites, but you have to make sure that data is high quality. They have a new free guide that helps you make that happen, uh, improves your conversion rates, improves the data quality of the people who are filling out your Contact Us form, your ebook download form, etc. Great tips from Jan Rain. Take a look at this. It's ar.gy slash better registration. It's ar.gy slash better registration. That is also all lower case. All right, next week, prepare your mortgage questions. I have lots of tales of woe from the mortgage industry, so I will bring that to the show. Jeff, you will have a stat of the week, maybe not related to the mortgage industry, but maybe. Who knows? So many things could happen, Jay. Will you have a deck? Will you have a deck by next week? I will have a deck. In fact, I might even just uh, I might even log in from the deck. Might shoot the show from the from the deck. I love it. Uh, and Zeno, what will you bring to the show next week, other than your brilliance? Uh, you know, I'll have to come up with a holy social that has some sort of a mortgage element to it. I'll, I'll you've set work up for me, so I will do that. I actually have a late-breaking text message from Brian Solis, who says that the person that he would have a Skype call with, any living person, is Stowe Boyd. A brilliant man, actually. Uh, Brian says Stowe's a good friend, a web anthropologist and futurist, uh, and he can be found at StowBoyd.com. And Brian says that Stowe has very much helped shape Brian's thinking. An excellent, excellent example. Uh, and we'll make sure to link that up so people can find uh, Stowe for themselves in the show notes. How about that? Real-time text messaging here on the Social Pros Podcast. We are operating in multiple dimensions. Until next week, I am Jay Baer from Convince and Convert. He's Jeff Roars. She is Zena Weiss. Thanks so much for listening to the show. This has been Social Pros. Thanks for listening to Social Pros, the show for real people doing real work in social media. Okay, coming through. Please tell your friends about the show. Subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher and view all episodes at socialpros.com. Until next week, thanks to presenting sponsor Exact Target, as well as Cision, Jan Rain, and XPI. Now, get back to work.